0: Did you recognize the voice? It's Tim Keller. I know a lot of you have been enjoying his sermons, his materials. And he has a point there. What is the Bible really about? What is the Bible really about? And I want to take off on that theme this morning and ask the question, what is the death and resurrection of Jesus really about? You see, if you've been following along in Mark With us Sunday after Sunday, you realize that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they didn't know what the scriptures were about. Oh, they memorized them, they taught them, but God came in human flesh, and they missed God. They missed God. The scriptures point to God coming. And he took on human flesh and dwelt among us, and the world missed him. How could this happen? Oh, on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, brothers and sisters, we dare not miss Jesus. We dare not miss Jesus. To the world, this is a day that celebrates new life, but by new life they mean spring, flowers, flowers. And tatch be (laughs) weeds. But as Christians with the Word of God who feed on a steady diet of the Word of God, let's not miss what the resurrection is really all about. Why do we do this? Well, the short answer of why we end up missing the true significance of the Word of God and who Christ was and what his death and resurrection meant is because we cannot help ourselves but to start with us and then evaluate and interpret our world from us. It's endemic to us. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. This man-centeredness. Or We try not to do it And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome it. And yet, our residual sin nature causes us still to become the final judge of what the Scriptures mean. Brothers and sisters, let's not do that. Now, we know the world does it. We just had a great example of it. They made a movie about Noah that wasn't really about Noah at all wasn't really about him at all. Very simple story, is it not? God looks on the world he created and he's disappointed he's grieved because man only did what was sinful constantly and only fought sinful thoughts, sinful desires. And God, because he's a God of justice, because he's a God of justice, must pour out his wrath on mankind. But he's also a God of mercy. And for years and years and years, this righteous man, Noah, builds an ark and warns people of the coming judgment. Ark was plenty big enough for Noah, his family, two of each kind of animal, and plenty of room for any that would repent. And yet none would. Was Noah a righteous man because he only did righteous things? The Bible tells us Noah was a righteous man because he put his faith in God. God said, build a boat in the middle of dry land. And Noah did it. In the same way that Abraham was told to leave your country and go. And he obeyed God. By faith, Abraham was saved. By faith, Noah and his family were saved. Theologians talk about this problem. How do you solve the problem of God's justice in God's mercy. If God doesn't punish, He's not just. If God doesn't forgive, He's not merciful. And so you see justice and mercy colliding in one story in Noah an ark. But once the door closed, the door was closed. After the flood, we see a rainbow. Significant of God's promise that He'll never judge the earth by water ever again, and yet there is a coming judgment, Peter tells us. And just like the days of Noah, men and women go about their business, eating, drinking, making merry, thinking God will not judge. How do we solve the problem of God's justice and mercy? That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. God said, I will take the justice, the punishment, on myself so that I can extend mercy to all those who believe. God solved the justice-mercy problem. Of course, God solves all the problems, doesn't he? Jesus is the answer. We've got lots of children in here today, and they know when we ask them a question in Sunday school, just say, Jesus. Just say, Jesus. And you know your teacher will say, Amen. Even though they might have been looking for a slightly different answer. But how can you say no to that precious answer? Yes, my child, Jesus is the answer in so many ways. We're going to explore that a little deeper today. What about the church, though? Certainly the church isn't going to get the resurrection of Jesus, wrong? I'm not so sure about that. Why do churches turn liberal and then disappear? Because they got the death and resurrection of Jesus wrong. To get the death and resurrection of Jesus wrong, you have to interpret the Scriptures wrong. And why would you interpret the Scriptures wrong? Because somewhere you decided in your heart to make them say what you want them to say. We're going to see from the Scriptures that God has indicted all of mankind, you and me, for that crime. Recently, I've been sorting through parenting curriculum for the church. All the different Christian parenting curriculum. You know what's amazing? can't find the gospel in most parenting curriculum. Christian parenting curriculum. No gospel. How do you raise Christian children without the gospel? What do you tell them when they do wrong over and over and over and can't seem to get a grip control of their own sin nature? Where is Jesus in our parenting curriculum? Where is Jesus in our marriage curriculum? Choosing a children's or a parenting curriculum that was infused with the gospel, and most of what people give me as feedback is where are the practical tips? Marriage curricula that focus on the gospel. Where's the practical tips? Where's the 10 ways to a better date night? Where's we want checklists, and God gave us Jesus. Much rather have a relationship with the living God than a relationship with a checklist. Checklists don't save, although they often convince us that they do. The death and resurrection of Jesus smacks us in the face when we're tempted to become legalists. You think you're holy and righteous on your own? Then explain a dead Savior and a risen Savior? Why would it be necessary for God to go to such extremes if our problem was so small? Why would God go to the most extreme solution if our problem was just a mere flaw, little cosmetic surgery could fix? So let's go into God's Word and look... At various scriptures and see what the death and resurrection of Jesus is really about. Romans is a great place to go, is it not? I'm going to go to Romans 10 9 and 10. Many have this verse memorized. Definitely a lot of our Awana clubbers have memorized these two verses. You know, interestingly, one popular parenting curriculum, I found the gospel, it was, it was on page one. One sentence. So it was there. And then off they go into practical ways to raise your children. When God wants to talk about the gospel, and we'll use the book of Romans as an example, it's 12 chapters of the gospel and then the therefore, and the rest of the book is about applying the gospel. Ephesians, three chapters of the gospel, and then three chapters of applying the gospel. Paul said all he wanted to preach about was Christ and Him crucified. But he also said, if Christ is not resurrected, then we are the most pitied among all men to be worshiping and following a dead Savior. But he's a living God, is He not? Amen. Amen. First and foremost, the death and resurrection of Jesus is about the Gospel. It is the Gospel. It's the core of the Gospel. It's the heart of the Gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In short, Jesus is Lord and Savior because He died and rose again. Man must believe that Christ died to pay the penalty of sin and imputes his righteousness to the believer. Paul said, For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness. Believes what? That God raised Christ from the dead. The fact that he was raised tells us God accepted his sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And man must confess that Jesus is Lord, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Why is is this important? There can only be one Lord. There can only be one Lord. How do we know this is the one? Because every minute, 100 people on this planet die. Every minute, 100 people on this planet die. It is appointed for man to die once. The exception of the people that Jesus rose from the dead. Some children, Lazarus. But what happened later? They died. But Jesus rose. He's the one man who didn't stay dead. And He lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The resurrection is important because it tells us Jesus is Lord. Secondly, the death and resurrection of Jesus is about Man's sin problem. Now, it's not in man's nature to go to the Word of God and say, tell me how messed up I am. We don't tend to do that. It's really not in our nature. Look at the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Scribes. They knew the Scriptures, and they walked around as if they were the greatest, holiest, God's gift to humanity. They must have missed something in the Scripture. Can you think of one hero in the Old Testament that comes close to Jesus? Can you? Yes, Noah was a righteous man, and after the flood, got drunk one night in his tent. Moses, the greatest of all prophets, a murderer, Led Egypt because he murdered, afraid, afraid to lead God's people, struck the rice the rock twice out of anger, was forbidden by God to go into the promised land. Often complained and grumbled himself about having to lead the people, and once said to God, just kill me now. I can't lead these people. Why would you give me these, these people to lead? blamed God for the job God had given him. King David, a man after God's own heart, and an adulterer, and a murderer, and a liar. These are our heroes. Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, tells us all about the great heroes of the Bible. Why couldn't the Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes see themselves for what we really are. What does the Bible tell us about our sin problem? Specifically, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus reveal to us about our sin problem? First, it tells us that man believes he has a righteousness of his own. Man believes that he has a righteousness of his own. To some extent, all of us are guilty Of self-righteousness. We truly think we're good people. And we could really bring out lots of evidence to convince you so. We keep a little chart in our mind. We don't always tell people our chart, but it's there. You can tell because of the way we treat people. We've got this chart of good deeds in our mind, and there we have a chart, a file on everybody else, and our file stacks up better against others. And so, therefore, we believe we have the right to play Lord in our own life and play Lord in other people's lives. We all do it. We don't like to admit we do. And yet, admitting is the key to fixing the problem. You don't know how to fix the problem until you know what the problem is. The problem is we don't like to admit we're wrong and we don't like to be confronted about it. Now, there's a dilemma. God is trying to lovingly confront us with our problem, the very problem He came to fix. Man believes that being right all the time and being a good person gives him the right to be his own Lord and lord it over others. This is a great dilemma. To come to Jesus and believe in what the death and resurrection of Jesus is really about, you must admit two things I'm wrong, and I don't get to be in charge. Except these are the two things nobody likes to admit. Do you like to say you're wrong? yes, I do like to say you're wrong. (laughs) Do you like to say I'm wrong? It's very hard to say I am wrong. I am wrong. Oh, we'll say everybody's wrong. Nobody's perfect. I was wrong because I didn't have enough information. So I wasn't really wrong. I was right based on the information I had, but I wasn't really wrong. I was wrong because of your behavior. It influenced me to respond in a way that was wrong. So really, you were wrong, and you take the blame for my wrongness. Is anything resonating in your heart? does mine. It's not enough just to acknowledge it, but that's a good start. But we can't, as Christians, just sit around and kind of laugh it off and say, "Eh, that's me, that's you, let's give each other a break. Certainly we can extend grace to one another knowing, wow, this is me. When I see what I'm guilty of in you, instead of jumping to the judgment seat, I should first say, wow, that's me. Is that what that looks like? Here's some popular statements I hear Christians say that tells me this really is endemic to who we are. Jennifer showed me on Facebook the other day this this quote. Jesus died because you are worth it. Of course, why wouldn't he die for, for somebody like me? Now, I don't know what the writer of that line had in mind completely. I could take the scripture and work that into a theologically correct statement, but something tells me what they meant was God just couldn't help himself but, but to die for me. Grace isn't so amazing if we were worth it. Amazing grace is you would die for somebody like me. Some other statements I hear Christians make: "I finally learned to forgive myself." I finally learned to forgive myself. Sounds like a humble statement. I'm too hard on myself, so I need to forgive myself. I sin against. How do you sin against yourself? It takes two parties to sin against someone. What that means when people often say that is, I have a very high view of myself, and when I don't live up to my high view of myself, I get very angry and disappointed. The trick is to lower your view of yourself. Then you won't need to forgive yourself. I finally learned to love myself hear that one a lot, too. Finally learned to love myself. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. We covered that last week. One of the hardest ones I've ever heard was that elder at a church three churches ago. And um, a lady got up to give her testimony right in the middle of church, and she said, I, I finally learned to forgive God. What do you do as an elder there? Do you grab the microphone? (laughs) I finally learned to forgive. She, She had a terrible childhood. There was abuse in her past. You understand why you would say that, but is that helpful if you think God makes mistakes and sins and we need to forgive him? All these types of statements are evidence that We've got things backwards. We've exchanged roles with God. We see ourselves as the sinless ones, or at least close. And we see ourselves as Lord. Let's look at Romans 1, 16 together. Another familiar verse. Another Owana verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're Jewish here, you fall into the category of Jew. If you're not, the rest of us are Greeks, Gentiles. It is a power of God for salvation for everyone. All mankind. What's there to be ashamed? Why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? We often talk about this verse in the context of, when I go out and evangelize, I don't want to chicken out. It's not really what Paul has in mind here. The reason somebody would be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, tells us that we're not good and we're not righteous. By believing the Gospel, you're admitting and acknowledging and professing to the world, I am a sinner worthy of damnation. Yet I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because in Christ He's accepted me. He accepted Christ's death. How do we know? Because He is risen. If God did not accept Christ's death, He'd still be dead. But He is risen. And I'm not ashamed to tell the world that I'm not righteous on my own. But my Redeemer lives. Paul says, For in it, in what? In it, in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God. So much has been written about that prepositional phrase. The righteousness of God. And to the best theologians can agree on is that it means two things. We're taught in seminary not to make a verse mean two things. You do it too often and you kind of take the chicken way out. You just make everybody happy. And yet, certainly, the grammar here lends itself to two meanings here. The righteousness of God is talking about God's righteousness, completely different than ours. In fact, the most righteous man's righteousness fall so short of God's righteousness that they can't even be compared. You get this? There's a righteousness of God. And there's no judge out there sitting there looking at God's attributes and His deeds and His words and saying, now that's righteous. No, God Himself in His essence is righteousness. He's the source of the definition of of righteousness. He embodies righteousness. If there were something that we were using to compare God's righteousness to others, then that something else would be the standard of righteousness. And whatever that else would be, would be God. God, by definition, is the righteous one. So Paul's talking about this righteousness of God, but he's also talking about a righteousness that comes from God. You see see the difference? A righteousness that comes from God. Maybe we could say this, and I wish I had an illustration ready beforehand. Let's see if the Holy Spirit will give me one. Or maybe you could help. Think of something we would say in English where it's something of something about the love of my mother? Love coming from my mother. So this righteousness of God is righteousness that is coming to us from God. So there's this righteousness of God that is very different from our own. And the Gospel is also saying that this righteousness comes to us. Revealed from faith to faith. Meaning, the more we believe and trust, little by little by little by little, this righteousness from God is revealed to us. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Do you want to be righteous today? Then you're going to need a righteousness not your own. There's a righteousness of God. Well, I can't be righteous like God. No, you can't. That's the problem. That was the whole gist of the Gospel. Man cannot attain to the righteousness of God, which is the standard for entrance into heaven and eternal life. All this time, man should have been frustrated trying to keep the law. And yet we delude ourselves into thinking we're righteous enough. Well, how do you get the righteousness of God? Here's what man has done. You and I, before faith in Christ, were convinced that we could, in and of ourselves, get this righteousness Of God. In essence, making ourselves God. We make ourselves our own little gods. Now I have a righteousness that's equal to God's. Yet the entire gospel is about God exchanging our sinfulness for his righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. On our behalf. The only way we're going to get this righteousness is by faith, to believe that God has the power to treat us as if we're as righteous as He is. How? Through our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who had the righteousness of God, because He is God. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Which men? All of us. I know we read Romans 1 and we like to think it's about unbelievers. It's about all of us. God is laying out His court case against humanity. Why? What is humanity guilty of? Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Suppress the truth. Picture trying to hold a beach ball underwater at the pool. The truth wants to pop up to the surface. Here I am. It's truth. And we, we push it down. And we try to live as if truth isn't truth. And we replace truth with our own truth. This is God's grand indictment of humanity. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. You know, the beach ball bubbles up inside you. You know deep down that you're not righteous. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen in creation. You you can't stand at the foot of half dome and go, I'm God. But we do. Maybe not in that moment, but in the moment when we're bossing people around, when we're thinking very high thoughts of ourselves, when we're lording it over people, when we're complaining about our circumstances that God has put us in. We are playing the role of God. And so it says they are without excuse. Who's the they? That's us. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I borrowed some of this material here on this page from Albert Moeller. Dr. Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary, the largest seminary, flagship seminary for our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. He gave a message at the Shepherds Conference, which you guys sent me to, and Nathan. And um, next year, all of the elders are planning to attend, and staff. It'll be a wonderful time. And he did a sermon on Romans 1, and we all said, hey, we know Romans 1, this is going to be great. And he took an angle I wasn't expecting, really had a profound effect on my life, and I want to share it with you. He says, man is guilty of exchanging. We're exchangers. Exchangers. Ever gotten a gift from somebody with a gift receipt? Like, how long do you have to wait before you exchange it? What's the appropriate length of time? You kind of have to open it and act (laughs) like it's the greatest gift that's ever been given to you. And here, God has given us the gift of His Son. And we hope we've saved the gift receipts. Or we, we put it up on the shelf. You know, like you do. That picture your parents gave you. Well, they're going to be in town visiting. Where's the picture? Where's the funky statue? Or whatever it was, you know, to honor your parents. Is that honoring though? No. They can tell on the mantle that the dust ring doesn't match. (laughs) And so we often with God we 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 put Jesus up on the mantle, put our salvation up there. Put the gospel up there. In case he comes over. Don't want to be rude. I hope he's always over at your house. I hope so. What are these exchanges we make? They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I doubt many of you are worshipping idols or animals. Carved idols are animals. But what's the the first on the list? In the image of corruptible man. That's you and I. You and me. Man inclusive of both genders here. It's not just a man thing to do this. Women do it too. We exchange the glory of God with our own glory... Secondly, it says, Therefore, God gave them over and the lusts of their hearts, lust here meaning desires, not that other kind of lust, but just desires, to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's a second exchange. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And because we have children in the room, We'll just mention the third exchange. Please don't put it up on the screen. They exchange natural functions for unnatural functions. And eventually in verse 32, it says society gives hearty approval to those that practice such things. Sound familiar? Hearty approval... Exchanging God's promise, the rainbow, now is a symbol for that which God died for. So a summary of these exchanges. We exchange the glory of God for our own glory. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and exchange natural functions. We could call any natural function the God-ordained activities that he's given us as the blessings of life. Don't just think about the example Paul puts in Romans. That's just a Hebrew way of doing an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look, if people will exchange in this way, that tells us that we'll exchange other natural functions for unnatural. You and I are all guilty of making these exchanges. Why? What is going on in the heart? If you look at Genesis 3, the answer is there. Genesis 3, 4 through 6. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Right? He said... Is it true that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she correctly said, No, we can eat from any tree of the garden, but the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we must not eat from it or touch it, otherwise we will die. And Satan said, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I don't know if you see it there, but those three exchanges Paul talked about were right there in the garden. Those three exchanges. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, Is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those are the three exchanges. We're at the core, at the essence, my friends, of why we need a risen Savior. Don't you want to know why it is that you sin so you can turn from it? How is it that we're tempted? What is this lust of the flesh? It's the the most basic way we sin and get tempted. It'll make me feel good. It'll make me feel good. How base is that? You know, that's kind of what we help our children with. It's Easter. There is so much candy today. And they would just eat all of it, wouldn't they? Just eat all of it because it's going to make me happy. No, it won't not when you get a tummy ache. And so you have to help them fight their own fleshly desires. I mean we need we need to help each other today. Probably there's going to be so much food. We need to help each other. But it's not just food. Whatever. Whatever desires we have to satisfy our flesh. We take it up a notch. The second way that we're tempted It's through lust of the eyes. This taps into our emotions. Ooh, look at that. Oh, that's going to be good. Got to have that. We see it. We want it. We covet it. We're convinced it'll be good for us. Not in the same way as lust of the flesh. This is just, look at that. Can't stop looking at it. Got to have it. Sometimes we don't even know why we want it, we just want it. How is that really going to be good for you or make you happy? I don't know, I wasn't really thinking about that. I just saw it and wanted it. The third level hits us at the intellectual level the pride of life. You see the progression. What, is the, what does Genesis 3 tell us? She saw that the tree was good for food. Hmm. It'll make me feel satisfied. It's yummy. Yeah, but God said it'll make you die. Yeah, but it's food. It looks yummy. And that the tree was um, a delight to the eyes. Ooh, look at that. I don't know what this fruit looked like, but it was captivating. Yeah, but it'll make you die. Uh, no, I don't know. i got to have it. Raw emotionalism. It's how advertisers get us with everything. If we really took the time to stop and think about what we were buying, we wouldn't buy 90% of the stuff we buy, probably. They know that. We don't, we don't have time for you to think about it. Have you ever gone to buy a car? Do they really want you to go think about it? No. Oh, what are the ABCs of sales? Always. B Closing. Don't let people think about it. I got to call my wife and ask. I went to look at golf clubs last week. He's trying to sell me this driver. And I said, I need to to call my wife. And you could just see his face sink. (laughs) That's a no. (laughs) Why, do you need her permission for everything? Oh, now he's hitting me. Hitting the pride there. I did not buy the driver. Yeah, Pastor Andy's let me borrow his for free. So. <laughs> and then she said it, it, the, 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 food, the fruit is good for making one wise. I remember a couple of years ago, Nathan preached to us the temptation of Christ, and those are those three levels right there. Satan tempted Christ. First, he said, turn the rocks into bread. The basic level, the gut. You're hungry. You should get to eat. You have the power to turn the rocks into bread. Base level, yeah, I am hungry. But Jesus did not give in to temptation. In fact, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we have a wise Lord and Savior. This is his food. To do my Father's will is his eat and his drink. Then Satan tempted him at the next level. He brought him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Visual. Jesus was a man, just like us, tempted in every way, but without sin. Look, you could have all this. That must have been an amazing view. Wow. Of course, it all belonged to him anyways. But in the way... The Father had ordained. No shortcuts. First the cross, then the glory. How many of you out there want the glory before the cross? Go ahead, raise your hand. I want the reward without the work. And then finally he says, throw yourself off the temple and see if God's angels will come and rescue you. Are you important enough For God to rescue you. That's at the root of the heart of man, the pride. Am I important enough? Am I special enough? Am I meaningful enough? Will God stop short of nothing to rescue me? And Jesus did not give in to the temptations. He did not succumb to the pride of life. He did not succumb to the lust of the eyes. And He did not succumb to the lust of the flesh. Praise God, the one man on earth tempted in every way but did not sin. The last Adam. Jesus is Lord because He succeeded where man fails. Therefore, He's the perfect substitute for man. And again, God accepted His sacrifice because He is risen. Therefore, we can end with the flurry here. We're going to do the application. The death and resurrection of Jesus, then, is all about abundant life for believers. Connect the dots now. If God said that the penalty for succumbing to temptation was death, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord then it follows, therefore, because Jesus died and rose again, we can have assurance as believers that we will rise again after death. He's going to prepare a place for us. Not only that, but because He died and rose again, we can have complete assurance that were forgiven, loved and accepted in Christ. So we can live an abundant life now. We get a down payment on heaven now. We get a foretaste of the feast to come. So many of us brothers and sisters are not living the abundant life. And I'm not talking about the health, wealth and prosperity abundant life. I'm talking about knowing God Loves me. I am loved unconditionally. I am accepted in Christ. I don't have to perform anymore. I don't have to be afraid of people and what they think of me. I don't have to lie about my sin and pretend that I'm not sinning all the time. I don't have to boast in my sin. Paul says, may it never be. But I can be honest. When people come to me to point out my sins, I don't have to get defensive. I can listen. You're not telling me anything about me that God doesn't already know, and He died for me. So I can listen because I want to change and be more like my Savior. Because Jesus died, we can die to the pride of life. we can die to using our rightness to claim lordship for ourselves. Knowing that there is everlasting life in following the true Lord. I don't have to follow me and my agenda and my will. I could follow Christ, wherever that leads. It certainly leads to the cross. What did he say? If anyone follow after me, he must pick up his cross. If we saw people actually crucified in our day and age, we would not want to pick up our cross. But brothers and sisters, I contend with you this morning that admitting you're wrong feels like dying. I've tried to lead my own children into admitting they're wrong when everyone knows they're wrong. And it really looks like you're asking them to rip their heart out. I've experienced it too. You know, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger and you have a disagreement with your wife and you know you're wrong and you just need to tell her, I was wrong and it's like, I was... I'll, I'll, I'll tell her tomorrow. As if sleeping on it's going to make it Easier. Why do we have such a problem with that? Trust Jesus, die. And He rose again and there's life after admitting you were wrong. Oh, there's great life, great freedom. Aren't you tired of having to be right all the time? Truth is, you're not. You've deceived yourself, so just admit to it. Though we feel like we're dying when we admit we're wrong, we can be assured that it is just our pride in us that is dying. That's a good thing. There's abundant life in not having to be right all the time. Because Jesus died and rose again, we can die to lust of the eyes. We don't have to base our life off emotionalism. Emotions aren't bad. They're from God. When sanctified. But what a death sentence to live according to your emotions all the time. We don't have to exchange the truth of God for a lie anymore. We can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Good you're still with me. I know it's a long message. But we only have one service. So, I normally get two hours, so I'm taking like, you know, never mind. We can have confidence that we can stop coveting those pretty things in life that we think will make us happy knowing that sin never, ever delivers what it promises. Never. Even though it might feel like death to give up your idol. Have you ever tried to give up your pretty things? It feels like death. Because it is. But it's a good death. There's no glory until you go through the cross. I don't care what it is. If you ever tried to go on a fast from anything in your life, it feels like you're dying. Finally, we can die to the lust of the flesh, those carnal desires that have a grip on us knowing there is abundant life and experience the satisfaction that only Jesus can provide. I don't care what your carnal desire is. It's not delivering life. Oh, it tastes good, feels good for a moment, but it's bringing death. The wrong kind of death. The right kind of death is to die to it. And you can. That is the promise of the Gospel. That if you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ you will die and rise with Him at the end of your life. But now, in your sanctification, you can die daily to the very things you think give you life, but are really giving you death. Even though everything inside of you, your raw carnal desires, your emotions, and even your intellect are telling you, I need this to live Trust Jesus when He says, no, that is killing you. Die to it. There is life after death because He is risen. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is don't just cling to the cross and the empty tomb for your eternal life. Yes, definitely. But it's for our sanctification too. It's for our sanctification too. It's for life eternal and life abundant now. Try to sanctify yourself without the cross it always leads to legalism. Try to justify yourself without the sanctification, it leads to antinomianism, meaning you indulge in the very things that God had to die for. But a robust, full-orbed view of the death and resurrection of Christ leads us to hope in eternal life and live the abundant life now. The Gospel's not just for heaven. It's for here. It's about the glory of God that Jesus is Lord and He is life. He is king and his plans cannot be thwarted. He offers a full pardon for us traitors. Full pardon through faith. And he also offers us abundant life right now for all who will follow in his path. We must die so that we can live. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to sing, Crown Him with Many Crowns. I want you to soak in the lyrics. Let's get off our thrones and look at the Chosen One on His throne and live for Him and through Him. Amen? Amen. Amen.